evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week. And my goodness, do we have a fresh-faced show for you tonight. Joining me on the program this evening are No Campaign Advocate Miles Gerard to talk about his journey as a young Indigenous man and why he's voting no. And later on, we'll speak to high school student and founder of Nuclear for Australia, Will Shackle, about why it's senseless for Australia not to embrace nuclear energy. But first... The Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum is looming large with just over two weeks to go. And unfortunately for the Yes campaign, its prospects of success are looking grim. Adding to the slate of polls over the last few months is a fresh one from News Poll, showing those planning to vote Yes has dropped to just 36%. Yes at 36, no at 56, undecided at 8%. In other words, even if all the undecided go to the yes side, well behind no right now. And the problem for the yes side is this is no rogue poll. This is news poll. Others have similar numbers. And it's also the trend that's going to be the big worry. Let's have a look at how the voice has played out in terms of the peak of popularity. February was at 56. It was even higher in previous months. But that was before we knew the question. So at that peak of 56, we saw things steadily going down. And from this poll right here, this is only August, so this is only two or three weeks ago, 38, now down another to 36. You can see that's a very steady drop-off, in particular since May, and no sign of that changing at the moment. So at the moment, the voice, you'd have to say, on any of these opinion polls would be no chance to succeed. Something would have to be very wrong out there in polling land. It's a stunning trend and one that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese must be scratching his head in wonderment over. How could all that emotional blackmail he's been lumping onto Australians about good manners and a modest proposal have fallen on such deaf ears in the worst financial crisis since the economic collapse of 2008? How could endorsements by super-rich celebrities like John Farnham, Kate Blanchett, and now, of all people, American rapper Mick Jagger not sway the opinion of Australians who are struggling to pay their bills and mortgages? Now remember, as the saying goes, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Complacency is the enemy of the good and polls can always be wrong. But if the Indigenous voice to Parliament is, hopefully, voted down on the 14th of October, there will likely be a storm of finger-pointing at who or what is supposedly to blame. Of course, the top spectre will be the alleged racism and ignorance of Australians, but sensible people know that's simply not the case. Australia is one of the most successful multicultural nations in the world. You don't get that way by having a racist population. No. What's gone wrong for the Yes campaign, aside from the obvious things like Anthony Albanese pointedly refusing to provide Australians with any detail on the body until after it's apparently voted in, is that this proposal claims to be of and for the people, when in fact it's of and for the elites. It, has, it is as pretentious as can be, and your average Australian can smell that from a mile away. First, look at who is supporting this proposed voice to Parliament. 
In addition to being the trendy celebrity cause du jour, as I mentioned earlier, big corporations and big banks have thrown their weight behind it. In fact, most of the ASX top 20 companies are supporting a yes vote, including Woolworths and Coles and all four big banks. In addition, ANZ Bank, BHP, Rio Tinto and West Farmers have each donated $2 million to the Yes campaign, while NAB has kicked in $200,000. And not only that, NAB, the National Australia Bank, unveiled an Indigenous version of the bank's usual star logo as part of pledging their support to the Indigenous voice and hosted radical race activist and one of the architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is the document stating the intention of the voice, Thomas Mayo, at NAB's Melbourne headquarters in January this year to explain the yes side of things to its employees. Thomas Mayo even recited the Uluru Statement by heart. At the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, gathered from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. Westpac also released their own bit of corporate propaganda. We're now having a discussion uh, this year around referendum and what it means to have a voice. And if you look behind what that means, you, can, you only have to look at the empowered community regions and the jail network to see what it means to have a local regional voice. Of course, the really objectionable thing about these kinds of big corporations throwing their support behind the voice is the fact many of them are in part owned by woke investment funds BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street. Now I have discussed these investment funds many times on this program and how they hold companies to ransom through common ownership of stocks in order to enact a woke ESG agenda, thus bypassing the democratic process. It's reasonable to argue this corporate support for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament is all about hitting their ESG targets as possibly pressured by foreign investment funds who are substantial shareholders in the Commonwealth Bank, NAB, Westpac and more. It's extraordinary, therefore, that people on the left especially who claim to be so sceptical of capitalism and big corporations are so willing to accept the indirect financial backing of the Yes campaign by monolithic investment funds like BlackRock and Vanguard. It is the furthest thing from a grassroots movement, so far removed from the people it claims to want to help, it is practically in a different hemisphere. Which was pointed out by Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Senator Jacinta Price, in an interview with 2GB radio host Ben Fordham this week. And people are coming up to me, people in the bush, they are pretty sick of Aboriginal affairs being run by those in the city. And there's a bit of distrust there. And they've said to me, we're not supporting this. We, we, we can't support this because we don't feel like it's, it's about us uh, again, yet again. We, don't, we feel it's coming from the city folk. And, um, but, but the Prime Minister would say that's why the voice is needed, so that mm. it's not bureaucrats in big cities and in Canberra making decisions. 
It's coming from the people on the ground in Indigenous communities. That's why we need the voice. Yeah, look, unfortunately, um, Aboriginal affairs has been um, pretty much controlled by those in the cities, academics, you know, Indigenous academics, those who have um, gained university education, who are actually far removed from the circumstances on the ground in communities. And unfortunately, those positions of power have always been held by those individuals. And uh, the voice will just be another one of those platforms, only it'll be enshrined within the constitution. Indeed. So, what happened last time another one of those platforms existed? The kind run by Indigenous academic elites who lived in the cities, whose understanding of Indigenous issues bore little resemblance to the issues faced by the most disadvantaged in remote communities. I'm talking, of course, about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, or ATSIC, which was established by the Hawke Labor government in 1990 and culled by the Howard Liberal government in 2005. Now, ATSEC, like The Voice promises to be, was an advisory body, but it also had the power to deliver and monitor Indigenous programs and services. As to why it was abolished, well, there were a number of reasons, ranging from dubious spending to a culture of mismanagement to litigation involving its chairperson, Jeff Clark, in 2001. But there were other factors at play as well. Have a listen to this speech delivered by, of all people, former federal liberal politician Chris Pine back in 2003, as reported in the Age newspaper. Instead of using Aboriginal affairs as a political cause, the government has decided that the priority should be on solving real problems faced by the Aboriginal population. Unfortunately, that change has not been greeted with unanimous approval. Many ATSIC leaders were beneficiaries of the symbolic approach of the Keating era, which relied on taxpayers funding a small class of educated and media-savvy Aboriginal leaders to sell Labor's misguided policies. ATSIC's annual $1.1 billion budget is not hitting the ground. ATSIC funds must be spent on improving Aboriginal living standards and opportunities for sustainable economic development, not diverted down cultural and economic cul-de-sacs. Generous government funding, combined with a lack of accountability, has created a feudal system in Aboriginal Australia, and the privileged elite of ATSIC have no incentive to tell us that the system is dysfunctional. ATSIC has had 13 years to demonstrate its capacity to make a difference. It has failed. Its culture is one of corruption, nepotism, and elective victimhood. Pine's words must surely serve as a warning for what the Indigenous voice to Parliament will likely turn into. The voice contains all the same ingredients, a nationalised push by the elites who have little to do with what happens on the ground in remote communities. As Jacinta Price so rightly said, these are always the people who end up running Indigenous affairs while the gap stubbornly refuses to close. So, what's to be done? Well, Federal Nationals Party leader David Littleproud explained last week why nationalised, generalised bodies that attempt to address Indigenous issues don't work. 
This isn't about regional voices, this is about empowering local voices, local elders in each local community. We know to the postcode where the disadvantage is and what that disadvantage is. And we should be empowering the local elders in each of those communities, not on a big regional basis, but because this is hard be. for city people but to understand. they could very well be no, part of this representative I think it's important voice, I explain this part of okay, it. Okay, fair enough. I think, it's, I think it's important for me to explain this part of it, because city people don't appreciate that a regional voice for them is, is probably three or four suburbs. For us, uh, it is hundreds of different diverse communities over sometimes nearly a million square kilometres, at least hundreds of thousands of square kilometres, where those voices get lost because they get generalised and then they get brought back to Canberra and you, then they get nationalised. And a program that might work in Kunnamulla won't work in Camerwell. So, well, and that's the mistakes of the past, oh, what I, we did I with that. I agree with that. He then put forward what I think is actually quite possibly a reasonable alternative. We need a 2023 intervention, an intervention in Canberra, taking the bureaucrats out of Canberra and sitting around the town halls and sitting around the campfires with the elders and state and local governments and federal governments making sure that they design bespoke programs for each one of those communities. And that there has been... Uh, that has been achieved in some communities, but it hasn't been consistent because we're falling into this trap of thinking we send people to Canberra and it'll all work. When you send people to Canberra, our bureaucrats in Canberra generalise and then they nationalise programs and it doesn't work. There has been a generosity of financial support for Australians. Over $4 billion has been spent in, in the last financial year in programs, but they haven't been targeted to the local community. Empowering a local elder in those communities, designing a local program, actually has buy-in by those local communities. Yeah. I've seen all in all, something is rotten with the state of the elitist, corporate, metropolitan voice to parliament, which is why, if we can believe the polls... Australians, by and large, are simply not buying it. Well, it's 2023 and the Liberal Party has finally embraced nuclear energy, it seems. Not just as it relates to submarines, but as a form of baseload power to save Australians from the rolling blackouts that will most likely ensue from Labor's clownish march towards net zero under the pretense that they can somehow change the weather. And after the Liberals under former Prime Minister Scott Morrison threw Australians to the energy wolves by backflipping in 2021 to officially embrace net zero as government policy, thus closing the door on coal, the least the Liberals can do now is barrack for nuclear. And certainly, it seems the public zeitgeist is changing on nuclear, otherwise the Liberals likely wouldn't be pushing for it. As such, Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen has had to strike back, coming up with what is supposedly the eye-watering cost of the coalition's suggested nuclear energy model, which he relayed on the ABC's Q&A last week. $387 billion would be the cost to replace the coal-fired power in Australia with nuclear. That's an enormous amount of money. It's $25,000 per taxpayer, if the taxpayer funded it. Of course, that supposed $387 billion price tag, billion with a B, is willfully overblown, given that, one, it assumes coal-fired power will be replaced entirely by nuclear, which would require 71 small modular reactors to be installed. This is not something the Coalition has proposed. And two, 
The coalition is not suggesting that the taxpayer fund the cost. They are instead proposing to lift the ban on nuclear energy in Australia, thus handing the reins to the private sector to create a nuclear energy market here. In any case, any economic modelling done by this Labour government on energy should always be taken with a grain of salt, for reasons which Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy Ted O'Brien went on to point out. Is that the cost? Do you agree? Well, no, I don't, David, and I think the, the last time Minister Bowen released some economic modelling on Australia's energy system, it was to predict a $275 reduction in household power bills. Well, what's and your cost? We know, well, we know where that went. And Yes, indeed. Australians looking at their power bills over the last year and a half will know exactly where that went. Up. Even Grattan Institute's energy program director Tony Wood, who is pro-wind and solar and does not think Australia should be currently focusing on including nuclear energy in our power plan, agreed those costings by Bowen were dubious. Look, the truth here is that it's unknown. We don't, do not know what these things are going to take to build at scale. They don't exist at scale. They're not commercially available. Mm. Um, it's a bit like saying, look, uh, you see something on a website that looks like a nice thing to buy. Then you find out, well, we actually haven't made it yet. We're still in you know, the development phase. And maybe in 10 years' time, you'll be able to buy some. But if you need you know, a couple of hundred of these things, then you might be in a very long queue. So it's just incredibly uncertain. But what isn't dubious is the cost of renewable energy, namely wind, solar and hydro. Now, in my opinion, Chris Bowen has an attachment to renewable energy bordering on zealotry, hence the fact he can say repeatedly and with a straight face that renewables are the cheapest source of energy. It's very important because it underlines the fact that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, Mr Speaker. We need to do more, but we are doing more. Of course, renewable energy is actually now the cheapest form of energy. We know on this side of the house that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. And However, that is only half the story. While renewable energy may be cheap to generate, especially wind and solar, the price rises very quickly when you account for the cost of transmission and storage, all of which was outlined by federal opposition leader Peter Dutton in a speech at the Institute of Public Affairs in July this year. And when renewables and their associated storage technologies and infrastructure are rolled out on a mass scale, it's inevitable that costs will be passed on to consumers. Indeed, last month, Transgrid's chief executive, Brett Redman, spoke about the company's plans to spend more than $16 billion to upgrade, upgrade the East Coast power grid. He said that that investment, and I quote, will show up in future bills. And of course, he's right. KPMG is determined that new transmission costs will blow out by some 40%. And according to AEMO's integrated system plan, capital expenditure on renewables and the transmission infrastructure to support them out to 2050 will be about $383 billion. But engineer Dr David Hayden Collins says that when the replacement of panels and turbines are factored in, the cost is likely to be $1.3 trillion five times greater than AEMO's estimate. And with the path the Albanese government has us on, 
We know Australians will pay more as more renewables are put into the system. So much for Chris Bowen's assertion that more renewables will mean cheaper power bills. Not to mention the fact wind and solar especially are the furthest thing from practical or environmentally friendly, which Peter Dutton also outlined. We hear very frequently from the renewables only campaigners that they're better for the environment. Under the government's plans by 2030, more than 58 million solar panels will need to be installed and almost 3,500 wind turbines built to reach our emission reduction targets. By 2050, the plan includes carpeting our landscape, including across national parks and prime agricultural land with 28,000 kilometres of new transmission poles and wires. The equivalent of almost the entire coastline of mainland Australia at a cost of at least $100 billion. Now, putting aside the fact that a rollout of that scale is absolutely fanciful, given the approvals required and the massive engineering feat, the labour that's required. How on earth is it environmentally friendly? This question is one we need to pose more often to the renewables-only backers. All these transmission lines and the sheer size of solar and wind farms constitute an enormous environmental footprint. Dr Collins notes that the land area and associated environmental impacts of photovoltaic cells and solar and wind farms and so it goes on, over a thousand times greater than a nuclear power station's footprint. He also says that turbine blades and batteries need to be replaced every 20 years and that they'll simply end up as landfill because the blades are non-recyclable and it's not yet economically viable to recycle lithium batteries. But what of the cost of nuclear? Well, while Bowen can flap around all he likes with augmented costings to score points against his political enemies, the bottom line is nuclear power has worked in many other countries to provide a source of emissions-free, reliable baseload power, all while bringing power bills down. Not as competition to renewable energy, but as a companion. Just ask environmentalist and author Michael Schellenberger, who relayed this in a 2019 TEDx talk. You know, we've been hearing a lot about how solar panels and wind turbines have come down in cost in recent years, but that cost has been significantly outweighed by just the challenges of integrating all of that unreliable power onto the grid. Just take, for instance, what's happened in California. At the period in which solar panels have come down in price very significantly, same with wind, we've seen our electricity prices go up five times more than the rest of the country. And it, it's not unique to us. You can see the same phenomenon happened in Germany, which is really the world's leader in solar wind and other renewable technologies. Their prices increased 50% during their big renewable energy push. Now, you might think, well, Dealing with climate change is just going to require that we all pay more for energy. That's what I used to think. But consider the case of France. France actually gets twice as much of its electricity from clean, zero-emission sources than does Germany. And yet, France pays half as much, almost half as much for its electricity. How can that be? Well, you might have already anticipated the answer. France gets most of its electricity from nuclear power, about 75% in total. And nuclear just ends up being a lot more reliable, generating power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for about 90% of the year. 
While Chris Bowen and other renewable energy zealots can scream until they're blue in the face that nuclear energy isn't the right choice for Australia because of its alleged cost, the bottom line is it's disingenuous at best to try to do any kind of cost comparison, considering the level of government distortion within the marketplace in the form of subsidies for renewable energy and, of course, the ban on nuclear power in Australia. In fact, there's really only one way that Australians can know the cost of nuclear in our power grid, and this was outlined by 17-year-old Will Shackle, the founder of Nuclear for Australia, on Q&A last week, the same episode on which Bowen made his appearance. Getting us nowhere. The cost of nuclear is clearly highly contentious. And you know what the best way to find out the cost of nuclear energy is? It's to lift the nuclear energy ban because yeah, at yeah. that point... Point, you can actually see nuclear reactors, what they will cost, because at this stage, no company is able to propose for a nuclear reactor to be built in this country. And to what the uh, Minister for Climate Change and Energy said about it being a distraction, well, look, we should have all options on the table. And what I would say is I'd bring out, this is the ban on nuclear energy. It's a single A4 piece of paper. And if the government was serious about reaching net zero and having a guaranteed path to net zero, well, they'd get rid of this. They'd get rid of this prohibition. And I think that is how you solve climate change, is having all options on the table. Very well said indeed. So, what could a potential nuclear energy rollout in Australia look like? And why are politicians like Chris Bowen so terrified of giving it a chance? Joining me to discuss all of that and more is the man himself, Nuclear for Australia founder, Will Shackle. Will, it is fabulous to have you here this evening. Are you doing well? I am, and thanks for having me on, Daisy. It is my absolute pleasure. Now, Will, if people like Energy Minister Chris Bowen are so confident that renewables are the cheapest form of energy and nuclear is supposedly the most expensive, well, why don't they just repeal the ban and let the market decide? Well, I think that's the point I'd make. There is no harm to lifting the ban because if nuclear was indeed the most expensive form of energy and if nuclear reactors took too long to build, then not a single one would be built in this country, which would mean that there would be no issue for the politicians which do find issues with nuclear energy. The other thing I'd say is even if nuclear energy was the most expensive form of power, if you ban things just because they're too expensive, then why wouldn't Snowy Hydro 2 be banned? Why wouldn't Teslas be banned? Why wouldn't solar panels back in the day be banned? Why wouldn't even Gucci handbags be banned? It makes no sense to justify a ban on the basis of economics alone. And that's why I'm fighting so hard through my youth campaign, Nuclear for Australia, for the out-of-touch nuclear energy ban to be lifted in this country. And it is um, really extraordinary, isn't it? They're justifying, oh, it's you know we're not going to use it because it's supposedly going to be too um, expensive. I mean, you may, you mentioned Snowy Hydro, which of course was subject to cost blowouts. There's a real hypocrisy there, I think, isn't there? I would agree, because if you look at Snowy Hydro, that's blown out by billions of dollars and it's going to take more than a decade to construct. And that's not even a project which is going to produce power. It's simply a battery which is backing up renewables. And there's been delays in those as well. But I think the thing is, you can 
look at the economics of nuclear energy all you like, but until you lift the ban, there is no way of simply understanding the cost of nuclear energy because vendors are not actually allowed to submit their plans and their proposals to the minister for nuclear reactors to be built, at which point the clearest indication could possibly be made about the cost of nuclear energy. So rather than looking at reports like the GenCost report, which is heavily contested at the moment, um, the best indication you can see is when you look around the world. And the fact is that around the world that they are realising the economic viability of nuclear, and that's why 50 countries for the first time are considering opening up civil nuclear power reactors, and they wouldn't be considering that if nuclear was indeed, as the Minister for Climate Change said, the most expensive form of power generation. That's what I find so odd about Chris Bowen's comments. He goes on and on, doesn't he, about how nuclear is supposedly the most expensive form of energy. But then you've got countries like France, for instance, who, who use a lot of nuclear and their, their power bills are something like half of what Germany's are, which also has a lot of renewable energies, but no nuclear. How can Chris Bowen just sit there with a straight face and say this about nuclear when if you just look overseas, you'll see a totally different story. Look, I think, unfortunately, the situation here in Australia is that the climate wars, whatever the government says, are ongoing and both sides have been involved in those climate wars. Like, I have a serious question for the coalition. Why didn't they do anything on lifting the ban for more than a decade when they were in government? So it's both sides of, both sides of politics really need to have a firm look at themselves and question why do they still oppose certain technologies and have prejudice against certain technologies like nuclear which is proven to provide clean reliable electricity when truly we should have all options on the table if we want to avoid blackouts and successfully reach net zero so that's a serious question for the government because i think at this point they are finding any reason they can to maintain the ban it's clear australia even look at the fact that Australians support lifting the ban on nuclear energy. A Q&A poll last week found that I think it was something like six, over 60%, around 60% of Australians support lifting the ban. So the people are telling them the ban has to be lifted. At this point, the only reason why it's not being lifted, I think, is unfortunately due to ideology. I think so too. And there's been sort of easy points politically, I think, to gain from being anti-nuclear over the past few decades because of things like Chernobyl, um, of, of course. But that happened because of Soviet incompetence, not because of nuclear energy itself. There's this sort of, there's this perception that nuclear energy somehow isn't safe. But that's not the case, is it? Nuclear energy actually has a pretty, pretty good safety profile, doesn't it? Well, look, nuclear energy is not perfect, nor is any energy source for that matter. But like you said, there is particular context which are required for those events like Fukushima, Chernobyl and Three Mile Islands. But what I would say is statistically, nuclear energy is actually the second safest form of power generation. And that's really important because in many cases, it's actually statistically safer than renewables. But many of those incidents don't go reported in favour of the imagery and the fear-mongering which can be spread around nuclear energy. And the fact is that nuclear energy saves lives compared to fossil fuels, and it's been estimated that nuclear energy has saved an estimated 1.84 million lives by off-putting fossil fuels because of the fact that inevitably fossil fuels release pollution to the air, people breathe that in every day, and that has health consequences for people, and for some cases it can lead to death, unfortunately. So, I think that this issue of safety shouldn't be a barrier for lifting the ban on nuclear energy in Australia when you look 
squarely at the statistics. I mean, it's a fascinating discussion, isn't it? And um, don't you think it is an unfair comparison cost-wise to compare the current projected cost of nuclear and renewables, given that one is not only is one banned, nuclear is banned, but the other, renewables, is propped up in the market by subsidies and the taxpayer? I mean, that's not a fair comparison at all, is it? Well, I think it is quite difficult because the honest situation here in Australia is when you look at the government's reports and the costings they do for different technologies, obviously they've got an incentive to make renewables look cheap and that comes into a lot of things and there's a bit more detail to this discussion and I'd recommend that people read Claire Lerman's reporting on the cost of nuclear energy but the fact is in a lot of cases the renewables, the transmission infrastructure and the storage required to firm them up to mean that the lights stay on uh, when they're producing electricity are often not considered in the costings of renewables and that the government has a bias in their costings towards renewables, which I think is hugely problematic when they then compare a solution like nuclear economically. So I think the point I'd make here is that when you see what's going on with the reports and the biases gov the government has and their inability to create real accurate uh, figures for the economics of different technologies, that economics should not be a reason, as they're currently using, to keep the ban on nuclear energy in place. Mm, and particularly, as, as you say, with the cost of renewables, you mentioned quite rightly that the, the government sort of skirts around the idea of transmission costs and storage when it comes to things like wind and solar, when the reality is, isn't it, that wind and solar in particular, I made this point in my editorial, they're very cheap to generate. They're very cheap to generate. But when you stack those transmission and storage costs on top of that, that's when the costs blow out, isn't it, and really will hit Australia in the hip pocket. No, correct. And I should point out that the government does consider some of the costs, but based on Aidan Morrison's reporting and Claire Lerman's work on this, it's been actually found in the government's report, and it's important to give your viewers some context for this. The report that the government uses to basically uh, determine the cost of different uh, energy options is called the CSIRO Gen Cost Report, and they're actually not factoring in the costs for transmission and energy storage uh, from now to 2030 into their costings for different energy sources. And this is something that they actually admit themselves. And the issue for that is it's basically like they're determining the cost of a building when the foundation has already been paid for and uh, paid off. So it's not a fair estimate of the cost of different technologies. And it's a huge issue when it comes to renewables, which obviously, as we know, uh, I think it's a great thing that on face value, the capital costs of solar panels and wind turbines is quite low. That's a fantastic thing. And I'm certainly not completely opposed to renewables. I think all options should be on the table, but we need to have a serious look at the additional costs required for them, like you said, in regards to transmission and storage. Mm. And there seems to be, uh, speaking of misperceptions about nuclear and about renewable energy, a real misperception out there about nuclear waste. I genuinely blame The Simpsons for this. You know, you have in the intro of The Simpsons that that terrible lake around with the three-eyed fish and the goo sort of spewing out. Um, when your your wonderful appearance on Q&A the other night, uh, there were certain panellists there who were very, very upset about uh, nu nuclear waste and, you know, acting, oh, it's raw, isn't it radioactive? And it's, it's, it's all of these things. But that's a misperception, isn't it, about nuclear waste? It's much, much easier to manage, isn't it, than people think. 
Well, there's a few things to nuclear waste. The first thing is to say that Australia already manages nuclear waste safely, and we've done that for decades as part of ANSTO at Lucas Heights, the Australia's only nuclear reactor, 30 kilometres from the Sydney CBD. We've safely been able to manage low and intermediate level waste, and we're actually renowned around the world for doing that. First important thing is to point out there's three types of waste. There's low, intermediate and high-level waste, and they're ba basically ranked on their radioactivity. Now, the waste that Australia's not really had experience dealing with is the high-level waste. But the thing about that is we're going to inevitably have to deal with it as a result of the AUKUS agreement with the floating small modular reactors in the submarines. And, and the government is committed to hundreds of billions of dollars to those reactors and has agreed to managing the waste. So one way or another, they're going to have to deal with it. The thing specifically about high-level waste is there's never been a single incident attributed to it. It is safely managed around the world. The countries around the world don't have an issue with it. And the most incredible thing about it is the volume of waste is just so small. I used the example on Q&A that all, if you look at all of the high-level waste or spent fuel as it's referred to around the world, that from every single reactor, from the birth of nuclear energy, that could easily fit inside a stadium when you look at the volume of it alone. And the best thing about it is that it's not waste until you waste it. These days, spent nuclear fuel, fuel or high-level waste can actually be reprocessed or recycled, which means that that waste is actually incredibly valuable. And because of the fact that it still stores, it still has so much of its energy after it's been used in that initial fission reaction. So I don't actually, I don't understand why there is such an issue with waste. And if there was an issue with waste and we were to ban technologies because of the waste, then why wouldn't you ban renewables? Because we know even though that there's great innovations in this space, they ultimately accumulate a lot of waste. They have solar panels, wind turbines have to be uh, replaced every 20 to 30 years. And why wouldn't you ban also fossil fuels? Because ultimately the waste they release ends up in the atmosphere and we have to breathe that in every single day. So I actually don't think that nuclear waste is an issue and I don't think it should be an issue that gets in the way of lifting Australia's outdated and out-of-touch ban on nuclear energy. Yes, absolutely. And that uh, brings to mind actually one of the comments that your uh, one of your co-panellists made on, on Q&A to you about the sun. Uh, she's an economist, very pro, uh, you know who I'm talking about, very pro uh, wind and solar. And she said that to you quite sarcastically, I thought, well, I am pro nuclear energy because the sun is nuclear and it has no waste. And I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute, Missy, that's a little bit of a half truth there because uh, isn't she leaving out what you just mentioned, which is the massive amount of waste that comes from used up solar panels? Look, I, I think it's, it's funny because I've been, on Twitter there's been a bit of a debate with Simon Holmes at court because he got a bit <laughs> angry at me for pointing <laughs> that out. So he's been going after me, but some context your viewers might be a bit interested in. But uh, the fact is, regardless of the specific numbers which he's currently debating me on, that solar panels, just by their very nature, are not energy dense. You require a lot of solar panels to produce the same electricity as a small nuclear reactor would, and those solar panels have to be replaced every 20 to, 20 to 30 years, as I said. And currently, they're not being recycled, they're not being reprocessed. There's innovations in this space, but it's not true to say that there is no waste from uh, solar power, because when you look at those solar panels, 
that's electronic waste. It's some of the most harmful waste. There's toxic materials in those panels. And that is actually an issue that we can, should consider. That said, just like I don't think nuclear waste should be an issue, uh, should be an issue which gets in the way of lifting the nuclear energy ban, I don't think then for that reason we should be banning solar panels or anything like that. And we should be doing everything as a society to be able to manage the waste from those solar panels and indeed manage the waste from every energy source. Mm. And look, speaking of energy sources, well, a third of the world's uranium reserves are in Australia. Isn't it a bit silly that governments are just shipping this overseas for a quick buck rather than using it here to generate nuclear energy? Uh, the funny thing is actually in some states and territories have actually banned not only uranium mining but uranium exploration. So we're not even allowed to harness the potential of that uranium. And for that reason, even though we've got the largest reserves, like you said, in the world, we're actually the fourth, I'm pretty sure, the fourth largest exporter. So it makes no sense. And the point I'd make is if nuclear energy is apparently not right for Australia, if the reactors would take too long to build and would cost too much, then why wouldn't we be a good global citizen and help the rest of the world out reach net zero? Because ultimately that will have the biggest impact on our climate and the consequences of climate change in this country. Why wouldn't we help the rest of the world out and provide them a, our uranium to help them uh, to fuel their clean nuclear power reactors? That's the best way that we're going to be able to address climate change. But unfortunately, due to ideology, uh, the government is really shooting itself in the foot and not realising that huge potential that our uh, one of our greatest natural assets, uranium, could have. Mm, now, look, Will, you're very clearly very keen on fighting climate change um, and you've, you've said that the way to do this, to fight climate change, is to have all options on the table. So, Will, tell me, but just before we go... Why are these people like Chris Bowen, who also claims to be very keen on fighting climate change in any way that he can, why are people like Chris Bowen so hell-bent against diversifying our energy grid with as many sources as possible if it is so important, as he alleges, to fight climate change? Look, I think it's beyond me, but I think the broader observation I'd make about politics in Australia and in terms of the climate wars, because they are ongoing, is that for far too long, politicians have had a tunnel-minded approach to the energy transition. And in the case of the current government, I think that they're fixated on their renewable-centric approach. And, and because of that reason, that they're not willing to consider uh, different solutions, which they call a distraction, as you may have noted on <laughs> Q&A. So I think that fact is that we need to be have a pragmatic look at all of the solutions available to us in this country because we shouldn't we should have a diversified approach we shouldn't just rely on one solution because the fact is if the 100% renewable centric plan fails then it will fail disastrously for my generation and it will be my generation that's going to have to bear the brunt of the consequences so that's why I'm fighting so passionately for the ban on nuclear energy to be lifted. And that's why I ultimately started my campaign and started my petition at nuclearforaustralia.com slash petition. Will Shackle, you're fabulous. You are really fabulous. You are fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. And everyone, go and check out uh, Will's initiative, Nuclear for Australia. Thank you so much, Will, for coming on. Thanks, Daisy. Well, 
that's all we have time for tonight on the Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.